Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God who speaks to us, who um, opens up yourself to us so that we can know you. Lord, we pray that you would teach us today to be better listeners to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Hello, everyone. So we're talking today about approaching the Bible. I don't know if you watched the Winter Olympics, um, and during the Winter Olympics, we all became fans of curling, didn't we? Um, And one of the things, I think one of the moral lessons you can draw from curling is that the approach matters. Okay, so when they kind of, the person who sends the puck down, I don't know if it's called a puck, sends the thing down towards the target, that's the point which really matters, You know that's the point because of the kind of um, frantic desperation with which the scrubbers are scrubbing away. And you can tell that really, in the depths of their hearts, they know they're not making any difference whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) What what really matters is the first shove, the first approach towards the target. So we're talking about how to approach um, the Bible. And it's a really... Um, really actually deep and profound and interesting question, how we actually approach God's word. And I think we can actually answer it fairly well with a single word, with one, with one word. And yet I'm very reluctant to use the word because I know that as soon as I say it, it's going to be misunderstood. Um, the word is faith. Okay, We read the Bible through faith. And yet saying that probably means that you're hearing me to say, Maybe, maybe not, but often it means that I'm heard to say the Bible's not really true. The Bible's not really true. The reason you need faith to read the Bible is because actually it's not really true. That's why you need faith. If it was true, you wouldn't need faith. Or, or maybe, and maybe it's more like um, you can't really know whether the Bible's true or not. You can't really know whether it makes sense, whether it holds together. And so to kind of bridge that gap between what you can know about its truth and, and our lives, you need faith. But that's not what I mean, okay? I just wanted to clear that up right from the start. That's not what I mean when I say you need to read the Bible through faith. In fact, that's a really unchristian way of thinking about what faith is. Now, we approach the Bible with faith because faith does four things. Four things which I think are essential to kind of unlocking the power of the Bible. The Bible has influenced our history like no other book. It's the only book that has entire universities dedicated to its study. It's the book that's read more than any other book in the history of the world. No other book has impacted our culture, impacted people's lives like the Bible. And the reason it's impacted culture is because it's impacted people's lives. And when it impacts people's lives, it's because they read it with these four aspects of faith. So the four things that faith does as it approaches the Bible is faith seeks, faith submits, faith sees, and faith sets your heart on fire. That last one doesn't fit as well, does it? But they all begin with S, so that's the main thing. Faith seeks, faith submits, faith sees, and faith sets your heart on fire. So first of all, faith seeks. So when Luke starts his account, he's very deliberate in outlining his reasons for writing the account and also his methods for writing the account. He says, um, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke says he carefully investigates the testimonies that he's heard about Jesus. And the reason he carefully investigates, what motivates his careful investigation, is his faith. The fact he received these accounts and they seemed to him to ring true. And therefore, because they rang true, because he was kind of open to the possibility that these accounts are true, that's what motivated him in seeking out the evidence, in carefully investigating whether these accounts were true. So faith, one of the things that characterizes real faith is that it seeks, it explores, it carefully investigates. Now this goes against the kind of common definition of faith. Richard Dawkins is a real spokesman for this definition. He says, faith is the great cop-out, the excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even because of, the lack of evidence. So Richard Dawkins sees the reason you need faith is because you don't have evidence. Faith is a substitute for evidence. But we've seen here that Luke, that's not the way Luke approaches the accounts of Jesus. Luke seeks, Luke explores the evidence because of his faith. And so this is really important. Faith is not a substitute for evidence. Faith is the way we discover the evidence. Faith is the way we come to have the evidence. One of the earliest definitions of the function of faith was given by St. Augustine. He said, faith is faith-seeking understanding. I believe in order to know. I believe in order to understand. Now, I'm a biologist. I work as a scientist. And scientists are thought of as people who have nothing whatsoever to do with faith. Science is about a kind of cold, dispassionate evaluation of the evidence. That's the kind of common perception. But actually, that's not true. That's not true. What motivates scientists is faith. One of the people who saw this really clearly was one of the great philosophers of science called Michael Polanyi. And he says that science is a passionate endeavor. What drives scientists to discover is passion. And he says, um, let me read you this quote. He says that, that as scientists kind of go out to find out stuff about the world, what motivates them in their, in their act of discovery is their faith that there is something there to understand. What motivates them is the sense that they're onto something. They think they've got a grasp of something, and they, so they do their experiments, they investigate in order to discover those things. He says that we hope as we work at the problem, the solution will come to us, whether all at once or a bit by bit. And only if we believe that this solution exists can we passionately search for it and evoke from ourselves the steps towards its discovery. Science is a kind of costly endeavor. It costs time, it costs money. You invest stuff in your experiments. And the reason you invest stuff in your experiments is because you think you're onto something. You believe that there is something to discover. Faith motivates discovery. In fact, faith drives discovery in normal life as well. The way we learn stuff about the world is through living in faith. When I sit down on a chair, it's because I believe it will hold my weight. Now, I've once sat down on a chair which didn't hold my weight. I could, I could put a chair here now and say, I'll jump on this chair and it's going to hold my weight. And the reason I do that is because I believed in it. Now, it might collapse under my weight and I'd look stupid. But you see, 
at least I'd know. <laughs> I'd know it didn't hold my weight. If I was a skeptic, if I looked with real skepticism and doubt at that chair and said, no, that chair's not going to hold my weight, I'm not going to sit on it, I'd never know. I'd never discover whether or not that chair will hold my weight or not. So even when you discover you're wrong, you make those discoveries because you walk forward in faith, because you seek, you seek out answers. So faith is like the engine of discovery, and doubt is like the brakes. You need brakes in a car. If all you had is faith and no doubt, then you'd go crazy, you'd lose control. But if all you have is brakes, then you don't go anywhere. You don't discover anything. You just remain sat in your armchair and you don't learn. Luke had faith. He believed these accounts and therefore set out to carefully investigate their truth. And the problem is that for many people, as soon as you start talking about the Bible, they slam on the brakes and they pull on the handbrake and they turn off the engine and get out of the car. And the reason for that, there's a few reasons, and I haven't really got time to talk about it, but I just wanted to address two common misperceptions about the Bible because if you don't get this, then you won't approach the Bible, you won't open it up, it will remain a shut book. Okay, so two, two things. Lots of people think that the Bible is, especially the Gospels, are kind of historically inaccurate. They're not historical documents. You can't trust them historically. The other reason people often shut the Bible is because there's this deep suspicion about its claims. They think it's kind of um, desperately regressive and conservative. And it clashes so much with culture, with our culture, that we can't read it anymore. It's totally irrelevant. But I just want us to see really quickly that these two things, you can't use that as a reason for not opening the Bible. The first reason is almost certainly now out of date. It's an old basis. The basis for that skepticism is, is outdated. The second reason will be, one day, undoubtedly out of date. So the first reason, first of all, People used to say quite a lot that the Gospels are kind of written 100, 200 years after the events. They were written by people, by communities with definite agendas, and those Gospels were fulfilling those agendas. They were kind of rewriting history to support um, their own particular community priorities. But that is an old view, and actually more and more the foundations for that view are being worn away. One great book, um, really, um, really great book that I've really enjoyed reading is a guy, by a guy called Richard Balcom. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And, and it's just one of several books that have kind of pushed the Gospels, the dating of the Gospels, right back into the time of Jesus so that we can actually trust them. We can say that these Gospels, these accounts of Jesus' life, were written contemporary with the life of Jesus. We can say that, in fact, they were written by eyewitnesses of the events. So one thing that Richard Balcom does is he looks at the names in the Gospels. He says, he says when you're, if you were to make up a story, say 100 years in the future, one of the problems you'd have is getting the names right. Because if you're a teacher, you know that names change every year. And the most popular names one year are different from the names you have several years down the line. And so getting the names right is actually quite important you need to make sure that the popular names in your story were the popular names of the time. And Balcom said, well, that's something we can check, actually. And so he noticed that the popular names of the time were, in fact, those names that were popular in the Gospels. And in fact, what he did is he looked at the relative frequency with which the different names were used, the common names and the rare names, and he said, actually, they really match. You can do kind of statistical tests to show that they match. As he says, very likely, these are contemporary accounts. 
But more than that, he looks also at the names and he sees, it's funny actually sometimes how names are used in the Gospels. Do you notice in the account we looked at in, at the end of Luke, Luke 24, Jesus is walking along, he, has, he meets two people, two companions, and yet only one of them is named, Cleopas. And Balcom asks, why is that? Why is one named and not the other? And he says, and he shows it in lots of different places, he, Cleopas, is the eyewitness of that account. He is Luke's source. It's Luke's way of dropping in his source for that account. Cleopas is actually a very rare name. There wouldn't be many Cleopases around. Everyone knew at the time when Luke was writing to who Cleopas was. He's saying, he's my source for this account. Go and ask him about the story. Okay? So these are new arguments, new discoveries that mean that the kind of the skepticism that we often approach the New Testament accounts with is outdated. Now, we also approach the account with a kind of cultural prejudice. And often we say, look, the Bible is so regressive, it clashes so much with our culture um, that we can't really accept what it says at all. But this, this is a bad way of approaching the Bible. This kind of cultural skepticism will almost definitely one day be outdated as well. You see, culture varies so much with time and place. A Middle Eastern person reading the Bible will look at the kind of sexual ethics of the Bible and say, yeah, that, that makes sense, that's completely right. Uh, maybe, in fact, it could be a bit more conservative, a bit more strict. But then a Middle Eastern person may also look at the account of the prodigal son, for example, which talks about the unconditional forgiveness of a father to a son that shamed the family and say, that is so offensive. How can you believe that? How can that son be forgiven in that way? Completely the opposite. We love the stories of forgiveness, and yet we hate the stories about the sexual ethics. But it's our culture. We're reading it through our culture. It varies with time, it varies with place, and it also varies with time. We, our grandparents have all kinds of views that we are deeply embarrassed about. <laughs> and what, what that means is our grandchildren will be deeply embarrassed about the views we have now. <laughs> and so we can't use this kind of cultural basis as a way of critiquing the Bible because it's so variable, it's so relative. If the Bible's true, it's going to clash with our culture. And so we shouldn't use that as a basis to shut the Bible and not open it. And so what I'm doing really is appealing to you to have sufficient faith just to seek, (laughs) to open your minds to the possibility that this could be true, this could be real. Because unless you do that, you'll never discover it. You'll never discover it for yourself. The Bible is a historical document. It's a document which says that God comes and enters into our history a God that impacts history, impacts people's lives in history. And that means it opens itself up. God himself opens himself to our scrutiny, to our investigation. You can't scrutinize a private revelation in a cave. You can't scrutinize a kind of lofty philosophy. You can't scrutinize mystical experiences. But central to the Bible's claim is a historical encounter with God. And therefore, God's saying, look into this, investigate these claims. Jesus puts out his hands to us. He shows us his scars, and he says, put your hands, touch my scars, put your hands in my side. So when John writes, starts his letter, he writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, 
This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And Luke sees that this is a claim, a historical claim that can be investigated. And so he carefully investigates it. He writes an ordered account for his friend Theophilus so that his friend Theophilus can also go and investigate these claims. And so can we by looking at this very same account that Luke provides us with. So first then, faith seeks. The second point I want to make is that faith submits. Faith submits. Because at some point, you'll read the Bible, you'll read the accounts of Jesus, and you'll be submitting them to your scrutiny. And then suddenly, as you start to trust Jesus, as you start to listen to what he's saying, you'll realize that the Bible's now scrutinizing you. You're the one being judged, not you judging the Bible anymore. And this is a fundamental transition in reading the Bible and becoming a Christian is going from scrutinizing it from your perspective to being, having your perspective scrutinized by the Bible itself. And this is another vital aspect for unlocking the power of the Bible, submitting to its authority. And this means accepting and learning to accept what the Bible says, all that it says. Submission means making it the infallible rule, the kind of straight edge for your life. And you say, whoa, (laughs) wait a minute. There's one thing to go from talking about scrutinizing the historical claims to the Bible, and then it's a big jump, isn't it, to go on about submitting your whole life to the rule of the Bible. How on earth are you to make that jump? How on earth are you to make that rather stark transition? Because it is a big transition. But a Christian is simply someone who has come to trust Jesus. I read about Jesus and I realize this is one who is good in the most profound sense possible and one who is true in the most profound sense and one who is wise in the most profound sense possible. And then I think about myself and realize that often I am not good and I am not true and I am not wise. I have a very poor track record in those things. And so then I think, okay, so I need to trust Jesus. In fact, you know what? I need to trust Jesus more than I trust myself. And I need to trust what he says about me. And I need to trust what he says about the world. And I need to trust what he says about God. I need to trust what he says about himself. And I also, therefore, need to trust what he says about the word, about the Bible. And did you see what he says about the Bible in Luke 24? When he was speaking to these disciples who couldn't see him, even when he was standing right there before their eyes. These disciples who walked right along with the risen Lord Jesus and just couldn't accept that it could possibly be the risen Lord Jesus because their minds were closed to that possibility. What did he say to them? He said, how slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. How foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Bible. He goes on to say about Moses and the prophets. It's shorthand for saying all of the scriptures. Jesus is saying elsewhere, he says, heaven and earth will pass away before one stroke of the law will pass away. He's saying, you need to accept the Bible, all of it. We believe what Jesus says about the Bible when we trust him. Now, that doesn't mean we throw our brains out. It doesn't mean that we don't kind of apply a bit of historical criticism. We need to understand what it is, actually, that the Bible's saying. 
We need to think about genre. We need to think about the function of the text. We need to think about archaeology and other things like that. We need to try use all of those things to understand what it is actually saying. But eventually, when we get there, our aim and our goal is so that we can submit to it, so that we can make it the rule of our life. If we don't do that, if if the Bible doesn't have that kind of authority over us, then there's a real risk that we're believing in a made-up God. We're believing in a made-up God. There's a real risk that our relationship with God is fake. Do you see that? Do you see why that would be? If you don't trust what the Bible says, if you don't allow it to contradict you, if you don't allow it to critique you and infuriate you and confuse you, then probably, if your God agrees with everything you think, probably it's a made-up God. Probably it's a projection of your mind that you're putting out onto the world, a God who kind of strokes your ego. For a relationship to be real, to be authentic, it needs to be able to contradict us. That's part of what a real relationship is, isn't it? You might as well make friends with finger puppets if you want someone to agree with you the whole time. So... To have an authentic relationship with God, we need to submit to the Bible's authority. But also, faith seeks, faith submits, and faith sees. Faith sees as well. Unless you submit to the Bible's authority, you can't have a a real relationship with God. But also, unless you submit to the Bible's authority, you'll remain blind to reality. The amazing thing about that story we read in Luke 24 the kind of most striking thing is that they couldn't recognize Jesus. They couldn't see him. He was there walking along with them. It's almost funny. He says, they say, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and do you not know the things that have happened about Jesus of Nazareth? He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed down over him down to be sentenced and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They're saying all of this to the risen Lord Jesus. It's like a kind of Shakespearean farce. It's comical. Again, you get to the next story. Jesus shows them his hands and his feet. He eats a fish in front of them. And the disciples said they still couldn't, it says the disciples still couldn't believe until he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Because they their minds were closed to these possibilities. They couldn't see it. One of the things that psychologists describe about the way we often deceive ourselves is this thing called confirmation bias. You only ever see what you want to see. You only ever see what you expect to see. So you look out at the world and you look around you and what we always do inevitably is kind of filter our experiences so it fits with our expectations. That's the way we think. And it blinds us very often to what's really there. It's a classic way of deceiving yourself. Not expecting something means you don't see it. And this is what you see here. The disciples really didn't expect the Lord Jesus to rise. And so even when he was there in his flesh and blood, standing right before them, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. And so the question is, how can we avoid this? How can we avoid being blinkered by our culture? How can we avoid being blinded by our own kind of personal blind spots? Well, the answer is we need to see from beyond our perspective. And we need, in order to see, to submit to an authority beyond our limited perspective. 
The disciples saw Jesus, the flesh and blood Jesus, the evidence for the resurrection, only when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Often, my skeptical friends will say, me, will say to me, John, just show me the evidence and I'll believe. But you see, that's not how we work. It's not just that we need to see in order to believe. We need to believe in order to see. When I was training as a scientist, quite often I'd be shown um, images or graphs or these kind of elaborate plots, and they'd be completely incomprehensible to me. It would be completely, it would just look like random dots and shades of grey, and you couldn't really make out what was going on at all. And yet, I'd sit there and listen to my senior colleagues wax lyrical about all of these amazing conclusions they could draw from these pictures and these graphs. Sometimes I'd go to um, meetings with orthopaedic surgeons in the morning and they'd put up these x-rays and there'd just be this kind of really subtle difference in the shade of grey and on that basis they'd say, okay, we need to cut off his leg and give him a hip, hip replacement. I'd feel like saying, are you sure? Are you really sure you're seeing what you're seeing? But of course I didn't because I knew that they had much more experience and much more insight than I did. And so I submitted to their authority, and as I submitted to that authority, over time I learned to see. I could start to see what they could see. And so too with the Bible. As we read the Bible, what we're doing is we're trying to see things the way God sees them. We're trying to allow the Bible to open our minds so that we can see. But we'll only do that if we first of all submit to its authority, be open to the possibility that there is this kind of contradiction, that there's this jarring, that the Bible is saying stuff that at the moment we can't see for ourselves. Okay, so faith seeks, faith submits, faith sees. I've already spoken a bit too long, and yet my last point's the most important point. So can I just get you to stand up and turn around? This is a preacher's trick for giving himself another 20 minutes to talk. So... (laughs) Okay, have a stretch, and we're going to get to the last point. Great, so just imagine now this is a new sermon. Right, another another 20 minutes. (laughs) So faith seeks, faith submits, faith sees. Final point, final point. This is the most important point. Faith sets your heart on fire. Faith sets your heart on fire. Do you remember how the disciples described what happened when Jesus opened the scriptures to them. They said to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened the Bible to us? Didn't our hearts burn within us? Literally that heart burn. The heart in the, in the New Testament, we, we think of heart as the kind of seat of our emotion. The heart of the New Testament is the whole person. He's saying, they're saying, didn't our, didn't our lives just kind of come alive? Didn't we... Um, didn't love overflow from us when Jesus opened the word to us? And this is the most important point because it's quite possible to do all of those things that I've already said. It's quite possible to seek earnestly, to submit wholeheartedly to the Bible and yet totally read it in the wrong way. Totally read it in the wrong way so that the Bible doesn't set your heart in life. It just makes you sink. It just makes you feel heavy and depressed. In John chapter 5, um, there's a really remarkable verse um, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. 
the kind of Jewish Bible experts. And he says to them in verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. You diligently search the scriptures because by them you think you possess eternal life. And he says, but I know you and you do not have the love of God in your hearts. So you can study the Bible as much as you want. You can search it and totally miss the point. You can read it in such a way that it doesn't set your heart on fire. And the most scary thing about this verse is this is actually the default way to read the Bible. This is the way of reading the Bible that comes most naturally to us. It's the way you and I so often read the Bible every day. It's the way often we talk about Bibles in our home groups. It's the default way. It's when we read the Bible and make it about us. We make it about us. It's default because that's what we do with everything. Okay, We overhear a hushed conversation and we're sure someone's talking about us. <laughs> but we also read the Bible in that way as well. We make it about us. And it's not about us. It's not about us. We call it application sometimes. We see what the Bible says about a command and we say, okay, now I need to go and obey the command. We read in the Psalms about the emotional life of the psalmist or the way he prayed, and we think, okay, now I need to go and feel like that or go and pray like that. We read the stories about Jesus, about the heroes of the Old Testament, and we hold them up as examples that we follow or warnings that we should run away from. Straight away, it's about us, okay? David in front of Goliath, I've got to to be brave like David and face the giants. We make it about us. And... In some ways, that's great. That's a really helpful thing to do. But if that's all we do, if we stop there, we've totally missed the point. We've totally missed what the Bible's all about. And that's what the Pharisees couldn't see. Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal lives, but these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You refuse to come to me and have life. We make the Bible about us, but it's not about us. It's about Jesus. And if you think the Bible's about you, if you think it's all about examples to follow and laws to obey, then either you'll become proud and arrogant and judgmental and critical like the Pharisees if you think you're doing okay, or it will crush you. And whenever you read the Bible, you'll just feel so overwhelmed with guilt that eventually you'll shut the Bible, put it to the side, and you'll stop reading it. It's the opposite of what the disciples experienced when Jesus opened the Bible. Because when Jesus opened the Bible, he didn't make it about them. He showed them it was about him. And when he did that, when he did that, they said their hearts burned within them. One scholar called Edmund Clowney, he writes about how Jesus, how all of the stories in the Bible, ultimately, ultimately are there to point us to Jesus. Let me read a selection of the characters he picks up on. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam, who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is now imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that now cries out not for our condemnation, but for our forgiveness and our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable, familiar home and go out into the void, 
not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered by his father, but sacrificed by his father on the mount. When God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your only son whom you love from me, now we can say to God, now that we know you love us because you did not hold your only begotten son from us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, when you apply the Bible, don't make it about you. Make it about Jesus. When you read the story of David and Goliath, don't stand there trembling in, trembling in David's shoes, whispering to yourself, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. That's not the point. You're there 50 yards back amongst the Israelites, quivering because you can't fight Goliath. He's too big, he's too strong. And God sends a, a king, someone, a substitute, to stand in your place and fight the giant on your behalf. One who was not strong, but a weak shepherd boy. Who used his weakness to defeat this proud and arrogant Goliath. In David, we have a substitute. In, in Jesus, we have a substitute who fought the battle for us. We don't need to fight the giants. Jesus has done it. And then, then you can be brave. Once you see that you have a champion who goes ahead of you and fights the battle for you, then your heart can be filled with bravery and courage. And you can run forward and say, if he is for us, who can be against us? That's when courage comes, when you see the Bible is about Jesus. I said before, faith is a receiving grace. Faith is a receiving grace. That's, and this is really why you need to read the Bible with faith. Because to read the Bible, we need to receive what God has for us, what God has done for us in Jesus. When someone says, I love you, the way you receive that love, the way you experience it, the way you enjoy it, is through faith. That's the only way to receive that love, by opening yourself up to the possibility that person actually is loving you. The Bible is about Jesus. It's about God's love for us in Christ. We read the Bible with faith so that we can receive that love for ourselves. Then we will love like Jesus loved. Then we will be brave like David was brave. Then we will sacrifice ourselves like Jesus sacrificed himself. But only then, only when we first see it is about Jesus and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, your word which proclaims that you have done it all. You have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, we pray that we would see this, we would learn to see this, you would give us the diligence to seek out these truths, you would give us the humility to submit to your word so that we can see this for ourselves, but ultimately we pray that we would see it, that we would see your love for us, because, Lord, we want to know this love in our hearts for ourselves. Lord, please pour your love into your, our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we can know it and so that we can live it.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.